Armstrong and Getty Show. Welcome to it. Tim the Lawyer stuck in the uh, rain-soaked traffic. He'll be here momentarily. Um, can we hear Stephen Hawking number two? Positive, Sean. Remembering the great uh, scientist. And the writer. voice that I use is a very old hardware speech synthesizer made in 1986. I keep it because I have not heard a voice I like better and because by now... I have identified with it. Oh, he's explaining why he's stuck with his old school voice synthesizer. It's funny. I was hearing various quotes this morning, and I was wondering. I thought, Siri's way better than that. Yeah. My navigation system in my car. Well, actually, I guess I usually use my phone. But navigation, it's got all the uh, inflections right. Turn right at the next street. It's not turn right at the next street. It, it, it talks to you like a human being. So, okay, it's old school. And people expected to hear that. Yeah, it's the flavor that, that it's essentially the flavor he liked. He didn't personally hear one he liked better. And you know what? At a certain point, you just kind of learn to this is when I communicate, this is what I sound like. I'll bet this to is what I'm his used to. ear that sounded like his own voice. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Plus, you know, as a guy who's in the transmitting of voices business, a lot of the old school stuff worked better. And the- <laughs> you plugged it in, you turned it on, it worked. Here's a, uh, another kind of quick clip that uh, this was from an interview he did with John Oliver, and I just think it, it really highlights the, uh, the sense of humor that a lot of people uh, said he had that wasn't always apparent to everyone else. Right. You've stated that you believe there could be an infinite number of parallel universes. Does that mean that there is a universe out there where I am smarter than you? Yes, and also a universe where you're funny. <laughs> <laughs> Take that! <laughs> so you good. stupid Brit. Uh, that's nice. Oh, yeah, as long as we're on the theme. Uh, how about Hawking number three? I am discounting reports of UFOs. Why would they appear only to cranks and weirdos? <laughs> <laughs> Why would UFOs only appear to cranks and weirdos? That is a legitimate question. And finally, in this, this is probably the takeaway, uh, Hawking number one. I don't have much positive to say about motor neuron disease, but it taught me not to pity myself and to get on with what I still could do. I am happier now than before I developed the condition. Stephen Hawking. That's really cool. You know, it's not to get overly serious on you all, but I'm going down to see my folks in a couple of days, and my mom has been fighting Parkinson's disease for a very long time, and it's rough. It's very rough. It's not something you want. And uh, she's, you know, served as a bit of a Stephen Hawking-esque example for me of uh, courage and positivity in the face of crap nobody should ever deal with. So, anyway. On that life-affirming note, please uh, welcome back to the Armstrong and Getty Show, Tim Sandifer. Tim the lawyer, longtime friend. Great to be back. Associate hero. I'm not done yet. Of the oh, Armstrong oh, yes, and Getty no, Show. I'll that was quiet. just pausing for dramatic effect. Uh, before joining the Goldwater Institute, Tim was... Uh, a litigator for the Pacific Legal Foundation that we're big fans of for 15 years, blah, blah, blah. You're also some sort, now you can talk, you're some sort of fellow at Cato uh, Institute. and I'm an adjunct fellow at oh, Cato. Oh, you haven't made full fellow yet. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you are a nice fellow, but you're not a full what fellow. What that means is that they publish my books, but they don't write me checks. Well, they, they, they pay me for the books, but they don't give me a paycheck. Is what I mean. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. fair I, enough. I get so. my name on their website, and that's it. 
Yeah. Okay. All right. And and you do all sorts of interesting stuff, including fighting uh, for your entire adult right life for liberty and property rights and the right to work and that sort of thing. That's right. Yeah. Which is uh, which is very cool, and we appreciate that. So listen, I have no reason to kiss your butt. You're already my friend. Your career seems to be doing pretty well. Um, but I I read Frederick Douglass, Self Made Man, over the weekend. It is a uh, a compact read. Uh, which I want to ask you about in a little while. It's a hundred and some pages. Yeah, it's about twice the size of a book that you would you would prefer. I would prefer something in the seventy to eighty page range, but <laughs> I, I struggled through it. I'm a lawyer. I can't I can't <laughs> sign my name in eighty pages. I slogged through it uh, and read it, and it is absolutely terrific. It. Thank you. I, I just I loved it for a number of different reasons. Number one, I was reminded of what an incredible human being Frederick Douglass was. And when we study people like that, it reminds us of who we want to be. Maybe a little bit or maybe a lot. And I found his story incredibly moving. Yeah, there's an old story that when he was an an elderly man living at his home uh, overlooking Washington, D.C., which, by the way, is a museum you can go and visit today, and it's just, it's amazing. They have all of his original stuff still there. It's really cool, definitely worth going to see. Uh, there's an, a story that a young man came in to visit him and asked him, Mr. Douglas, what should I do with my life? And he said, agitate, agitate, agitate. Mm. And uh, that's kind of the motto of my own life. Yeah, yeah. I just ask all of my school teachers and my parents. And uh, On the show, I irritate, irritate, <laughs> irritate, but it's, it's close. It's close. So, yeah, I enjoyed it on that level. He's an incredibly admirable human being and ought to be a hero to American children. Everybody ought to know his story. Definitely. Um, And I'm not for a uh, monopoly on education, as I've made clear many times. I just think the story is so compelling and clearly one of of morality and courage that it just it ought to be legend. And and it's not. And 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 you you mentioned actually how odd it is there hasn't been a serious Frederick Douglass movie made. There's never been any portrayal of Douglass on film at all, ex- with with two exceptions. I'm not counting like educational films, but mm-hmm. uh, and that is there's a cameo in the movie Glory, the Matthew Broderick movie about the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, in which uh, uh, Douglass speaks like two sentences. And then uh, the musician John Legend portrayed him in a few scenes in the TV series Underground, which was just last year or the year before. Hmm. And that's it. Other than that, Douglas's story, it's never been filmed. And it's amazing because it's one of the one of the greatest of all American rags to riches, lift yourself up by the by your bootstraps stories about personal liberation and achievement. It's really astounding that it's never been made into a movie. Right. You want to make a great one. You want to write it? Oh, I'd love to. It'd be fantastic. I'll just rip off your book. In fact, I probably should because anybody else would get it wrong. I will. uh, I will tearfully thank you at the Oscars. We will write complete (laughs) competing screenplays. There will be bitterness. Uh, So, yeah, that's uh, and we need to talk about frederick Douglass's story more in detail but getting back to why i love the book it also and and a great biography does this but i was i was really impressed that you did this in 110 120 pages it reminds you of so many things that were happening in that time yeah the world he lived in and it reminded me again you know the old saying i've forgotten more than you'll ever learn i've forgotten more than i can comprehend and it scares me and you're low testosterone too i heard that yeah it's a gift man it's a <laughs> gift anyway um i was reminded of how terribly the united states backslid in terms of civil rights oh yeah from i don't know you cite whatever year you want 1870 through 1930 
Yeah, the, the, I mean, we went backwards bad. And this is a story that, I, I, I'm sorry to say, I think a lot of black Americans know this story and a lot of white Americans don't. Mm-hmm. The that horrible situation that occurred after the collapse of Reconstruction in 1877 between then and the Civil Rights Movement and the, the virtual re-enslavement that went on in the South. The story that I was told when I was growing up and I was in school was, you know, the Civil War was this terrible tragedy, but when Lee surrendered, it was, you know, the, the good that came about was that you didn't have sort of this lingering guerrilla warfare going on, and Americans patched things up, and then, the, you know, the, we went on and we're a nation again. And that's mm-hmm. not at all true. What right. happened was, in, in many ways, the North lost the Civil War in the sense that they failed to follow through on the promises of protecting the former slaves. And, we, and after withdrawing the, the federal troops from the South who were there to protect them, you basically had the reinstatement of terrorist rule, which is not unlike the withdrawal of U.S. troops from countries in the Middle East mm-hmm. and the and the resurrection of the terrorist states there. It's it's quite a remarkable historical parallel. Uh, really quickly, the importance of the amendments that passed in the aftermath of the Civil War. Yeah, the Thirteenth Amendment that abolished slavery and con- and any condition of involuntary servitude. The Fourteenth Amendment that guaranteed equal rights and citizenship to the former slaves, protected their rights to due process, the privileges and immunities of citizenship, and their protection, the equal protection of the law. And then the Fifteenth Amendment that guaranteed the former slaves the right to vote. Is it fair to say those amendments were completely unenforced in the South for many decades? I think it would be mostly fair to say. Yeah. I mean, there were there are some heroic exceptions, but certainly by 1900, the 15th Amendment's guarantee of, of voting rights had been basically nullified. Yeah. yeah. No question about it. And the 14th Amendment had been gutted in many ways, mostly because the most important provision of that amendment, the Privileges or Immunities Clause, was essentially erased uh, from the Constitution in the very first Supreme Court opinion to interpret the 14th Amendment. Uh, the slaughterhouse cases of 1873, which um, is one of the targets of the libertarian legal community today, is to try and overturn that decision. It's still on the books after all this time. Mm. And it still provides, as a result of that decision, the 14th Amendment fails to protect you against oppression by your own state government, as which is the reason that amendment was written. Right. Well, maybe I'm Nixon going to China because I've been so harshly critical of some of the social justice warrior movements of the modern day, which are... Uh, indefensible ideologically their their strategies are fascist and it's just ugly 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 so when i tell you this you know believe it the idea a lot of school kids got is the civil war was won slavery was done away with and then we didn't get it quite right but black people got more and more rights and then finally the civil rights movement of the 60s uh brought it home in a a serious way this is not true at all no there was a an enormous down curve that was i I mean there was horror tens of thousands of klansmen marching in the street in dc and right and and And, they're feeling their own because they had the power and woodrow wilson uh reinstating segregation from the white house i was taught when i was a kid that woodrow wilson was a great liberal hero oh my god he's quite the opposite of that he was a racist monster loathsome human being and and but that also we also shouldn't forget there was a lot of progress made between 1865 and 1875 during those years when the when the federal troops were there the ku klux klan was largely destroyed it was resurrected later but it was largely beaten the um, black southerners were participated not only in their state legislatures but participated in writing state constitutions in the south i mean it certainly was nothing like equality, but it was way better than conditions were only 25 years later, around 1900, 1915. What historians called the call the nadir of of uh, Black American life was w- when the courts failed to protect these rights and terrorist rule reigned supreme. Mm. 
the tragic story, but it's also it's also very inspiring in in a, in a sense because as James Baldwin said, American Negro history is the history of the perpetual achievement of the impossible. Mm. That's that's beautifully said. So a, a couple of quick points. Number one, I just I want to remind everybody that not all change is progress. Sometimes societies go backward. Right. Sometimes oh, yeah. things take hold, become popular. People like them that are terrible, terrible ideas. So just because it's popular doesn't mean it's a good idea. Oh, and the other thing, because you have the memory I don't, uh, you gave an example. And the in, testosterone. You know. Right, right. God, you should be in the same room with them. Just smell the horm- <laughs> the pheromones, folks. It's like a bull moose in the room. Um you gave an example of a, a gentleman, a, a black man being a congressman from a southern state. And when he left office, he was the last black man to represent that state for a Until 1972. Until 19... And when did he... Yeah. Who was that gen... And I, what I was the time remember, period? I can't remember the name either. Right, I'm sorry, but it was but, about 1900, 1901. Right, right. Yeah. So he got booted out during the nadir of, of the black experience. And it was 72 years before another black guy was a representative. Yeah. It's just absolute nightmarish. And what happened was the, the southern states, you know, the 14th Amendment says if a state deprives people of their right to vote when, you know, through these kinds of, of racist restrictions, it's deprived as a result of that. It's punished by having it, uh, of being deprived congressional representation. So they lose members of Congress. So the southern states said, well, OK, we're willing to do that. And the southern states, beginning in about 1890 or so, started disenfranchising black Americans and just daring Congress, challenging Congress to go ahead and punish them for it. And, of course, Congress refused to intercede and and took no effort. Theodore Roosevelt, when he became president, he came in and said, well, you know, maybe I'll take a look at this. And gradually he lost interest. And then nobody cared. And so southern states, by the turn of the century, had largely succeeded in destroying the right to vote for black Americans and so that by the 1950s or so, you got zero voters, zero black voters in places like Mississippi. Tim, Sandif- Tim Sandifer is with us. Uh, the book, Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man. We're going to be talking about uh, the book and how it affects or applies to some of the modern issues we're wrestling with and all sorts of good stuff. Uh, Tim is also going to guest judge the late night joke off, something I'm sure he's looking forward to. Can't wait. Uh, stay with us. It's the Armstrong and Getty Show. Look at you young men dying. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience. Of the nation. The Armstrong and Getty Show. It's the Armstrong and Getty Show. Welcome. My very favorite song of all time. I'm a credence freak. Oh, man. I played in a band with a dude in high school who could sing just like John oh. Fogarty. I can sing a lot like him, but this guy was like freakish. He was I've 17 tried years all old. my life, and it's not something I, I cannot accomplish. That. Abuse your throat for 25 years. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, so, Tim Sandifer, vice president for litigation at the Goldwater Institute, also the author of Frederick Douglass, Self Made Man, lovingly. Inscribed to me, Joe Getty, on the title page. Joe, here's your free copy, you cheap bastard. <laughs> I can't tell you how touched I am by that. That shamed me into running out and buying five copies at full retail price, which I will be donating to schools in my area. That's very kind of you. When I was in high school, I used to donate books to my own high school library. Oh, really? I was already so much of a... As a, a student? As a student. <laughs> It, it made me mad that my school library didn't have such and such a book, and I would come in and say, and I would write, donated by Tim Sandifer, and put it on the shelf. Oh, that's great. 
young agitator. Uh, speaking of agitating, and I do want to get back to the book and Frederick Douglass's life and, and the rest of it. And, and uh, here's something to stay tuned for. His utter contempt, loathing, disgust with the idea of socialism, communism, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, but it was kind of a one-in-one day for the Sanderford family yesterday. Uh, nice victory for you. Uh, a, a, a shocking and sickening setback for Christina. Which one do you want to start with? So, for those who don't know, the Goldwater Institute, where both Christina and I work, we have a number of different projects to advance freedom and, and promote the, the protections of the Constitution to people who are currently not being protected the way that they, that they ought to be. One of our efforts is our Right to Try project, which we've talked about a lot on this show. And that's the, the, uh, a law that says that if you're terminally ill and you need to access medicine that the FDA has approved for safety but has not yet given full approval for sale, and that process can take a decade, um, this right to try law says you're still allowed to use those drugs even though they haven't been fully approved for sale if you have a doctor's prescription. And we have gotten this law has now been passed in almost 40 states by overwhelming bipartisan majorities, including in California. And it was passed unanimously by the United States Senate, a federal version of it, just some weeks ago. And unfortunately, yesterday, uh, the House of Representatives turned it down. How the hell did that happen? Uh, it's very, it's, it's really frustrating. Now, it's not the end of the story by any means, because what was, this was kind of a procedural thing that was an attempt to get it done the quick way. And to do it the quick way, you need a supermajority. You need two-thirds vote. And that's always very hard to get. And they said no to that. So this means that it has to go the slow way. If it goes the slow way, though, it'll pass because this did get a majority vote. And of course it got a majority vote because the bottom line is it's the patient's life and it should be the patient's decision right. whether or not to take an experimental medicine that the FDA already admits is safe and right. is already giving to people in clinical trials. Yeah, that's astounding. But we will stay with that one. And in yeah. the 90 seconds we have roughly... Um, a nice victory for something you're fighting yeah. for. Well, we won one of our Indian Child Welfare Act cases. This is a project that we're working on challenging the constitutionality of this federal law, the Indian Child Welfare Act, that overrides state law when it comes to child safety, uh, uh, child welfare law, foster care, and adoption if a child is eligible for membership in an Indian tribe, which means is based entirely on genetics. So even if a child has no idea that he or she is Indian, he, is, he or she is subject to a separate federal rule that provides them with less protection and makes it virtually impossible for them to find adoptive homes. And we won a very important victory in that in the Ohio Court of Appeals yesterday. We're really excited about it. Check us out on our, on our website, goldwaterinstitute.org, or look me up on Twitter and find out more details. It's a wonderful success. Yeah, it's a bizarre and troubling system we have where kids who may be of Indian heritage don't get the rights and protections and... This they law, can be yanked out of homes in ways that are just heartbreaking. This law literally makes it easier to put somebody on death row than to find an adoptive home for an Indian child. Wow. Wow. So, uh, Marsh Phillips, we're going to hit some headlines uh, fairly quickly after the break and then uh, resume our conversation with Tim Sandifer. Marsh, what do you have for us? All right. Trump leaving Southern California after a day of wall gazing and fundraising. What is the most expensive year of your life? And did Miley Cyrus steal another singer's mojo? Stories coming up minutes from now on the Armstrong and Getty Show. Were you rapping at the beginning of that tease just a little bit with the fundraising and wall game? Being creative, moving, moving, grooving. News next, Armstrong and Getty Show. It's the 
Armstrong and Getty Show. Mm, excuse me. <clears throat> We're going to be talking more with Timothy Sandifer from the Goldwater Institute about his book, Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man, and, um, and all sorts of related topics. It is an absolutely fabulous book about a mind-blowingly admirable man who people don't near, know nearly enough about. Uh, Speaking of the incredibly admirable, here's Marshall Phillips with the news. We've got students across the U.S. walking out of class today protesting gun violence after that school shooting in Florida. It's an unexcused absence. I appreciate their activism. I think it's great they're getting involved. But you got to ding them. Walking out after the school shooting in Florida left 17 dead a month ago. uh, The demonstrations are going to be carried out at 8 a.m. this morning in every time zone. They're going to last for 17 minutes, one minute for each person that was killed at that high school. Eh, 17 minutes, that's like an extended visit to the John. I guess I could live with that. Never mind the unexcused absence thing. The thing that bothers me is you've got, like, West Virginia. They're staging the kids walking out in support of the teachers, which is all mobilized by the teachers' unions. And there have been a couple of these things in California having to do with... uh, uh, pro-illegal immigrant activism and the rest of it. It's just getting too much. Principals it, encouraging or even pressuring students to participate in these protests. Exactly. It's gone way too far. It's, I think it's unconstitutional. I think it's, I think it's illegal and, and wrong for the government paid employee to be pressuring a student from a school to go and participate in the political rally to state a political opinion. And that is a solid basis for my half-baked opinion. I appreciate providing it, Tim. Marsh? President Trump leaving L.A. at this hour after a quick visit to San Diego and Los Angeles. Yesterday, Trump checked out eight prototypes of his long-promised border wall near the U.S.-Mexican border, saying the wall needs to be see-through, and that he really prefers it be concrete because that's going to be the hardest to climb. It's very hard to get over the top. It's really deterrent from getting over the top. But getting over the top is easy. These are like professional mountain climbers. They're incredible climbers. They can't climb some of these walls. Some of them they can. Those are the walls we're not using. Ah, where do we begin with the professional mountain climbing instruction little Mexicans kids get, or, or the fact that... <laughs> <laughs> the companies that just spent millions and millions of dollars on these prototypes hadn't been told he wanted a transparent one. Transparent concrete. Well, or bars. Is that like the transparent aluminum from Star Trek? <laughs> like the transparency of government right now, which we need more of. Well, no, bars. Like bars with space in between them. If you wanted that, why didn't you tell us that? We spent $15 million on this. The president also took a shot at California's Democratic Governor Jerry Brown and the state's sanctuary city and the state policies. Governor Brown's done a very poor job running California. They have the highest taxes in the United States. Uh, the place is totally out of control. And after seeing the prototypes making those comments, Trump then went on to speak to the U.S. Marines at the airbase in Miramar, where he promised the biggest military buildup since Ronald Reagan and suggested that buildup might include a U.S. military space force. We're doing a tremendous amount of work in space. I said, maybe we need a new force. We'll call it the Space Force. And I was not really serious. And then I said, what a great idea. Maybe we'll have to do that. That could happen. Arm our rockets. Mount a machine gun on our rockets. Fly them through space. Anybody messes with us, gun them right out of the sky. I love it. So this is not a movie starring The Rock that's debuting later this year. It may be. <laughs> you know, I'd hate to see The Rock wearing that toupee. <laughs> Life is generally uh, expensive, but have you ever wondered which year will make you feel the most financially strained? UK-based credit check uh, site ClearScore crunched some numbers, and they've determined age 31 is the most expensive, costing about $60,000. 
In a poll of 3,000 people, 27% said the cost of getting married emptied their pockets around that age. 25% said the cost of buying a house also added to their debt that year. Counterpoint, the cost of getting married didn't cause you financial hardship. The cost of your wedding did. Ah, And honeymooning. And honeymooning. And having a baby. These all occur right around the uh, time of uh, you turn 31. It's tough to do a baby on the cheap. Yep. Yep, yep. Another interesting find, nearly 33% of the respondents between 25 and 34 say they still get money from mom and dad. Uh, what percentage? 25%, 33%, excuse me. <sighs> wow. A third. Wow. A mm. third. Miley Cyrus is being accused of copyright infringement. There's a Jamaican singer named Florgan who filed a $300 million lawsuit against her over her track, We Can't Stop claiming she borrowed from one of his own songs to make it. Now, he does not argue that Cyrus stole a specific line or the music from the song, but that she based the theme of We Can't Stop off his unique and creative lyrical phraseology. Well, that's horse crap. In addition, <laughs> in addition to money for damages and attorney fees, he wants her to stop performing the track and making any money off of it. Now, let me, we've got a montage. Well, I'm okay with that. Just stop performing in general. <laughs> <laughs> we got, we've got a montage of the two here. I wish you would. Very unique, eh? Make it stop now. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. I can hardly tell them apart. <laughs> Wait, is, is this Miley right now? No. no All right. Not. That's enough of that. Anyway, so he's launched his suit. All right. Wrap it up. There you go. That's your news. I'm Marshall Phillips. The Armstrong and Getty Show, the conscience of the nation. And uh, by the way, uh, Tim, I don't know if you've heard. The, the sound, lovely seagull. The sound. <laughs> That's the sound God. of a bald eagle as far as you know. Thank you, Marshall. Yeah, yeah the whole cottage industry of, of, of phony musical lawsuits really annoys me. Um, we can we can do the, the rest of the show on why intellectual property law is bad. Wow, interesting. Be very exciting. I'm okay, sure. so I will uh, hastily uh, photocopy your book, Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man, release it under my own name. Yes. <laughs> See how much money I can make. Now we'll talk about that. Uh, I want to talk about Frederick Douglass and his views on uh, communism and socialism, which were absolutely philosophies being discussed in the 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, when we come back, I want to leave plenty of time for that. Hang around a wide-ranging discussion. With, mm. Is this Miley Cyrus again? No, it's the Jamaican guy. Oh. No, it's Miley Cyrus. <laughs> oh, wow. It's hard I'll to tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stay with us. It's the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the nation. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty Show. Glad you're here. Jack is out today. He took his dad um, to see uh, LeBron James, front row, Phoenix, for his 80th birthday. Um, and is flying back. A really great gift for his dad, who's just been a frugal, you know, kind of practical man his whole life. And Jack went wild and gave him a big present. So it's kind of cool. But anyway, uh, Tim Sandifer is with us here. Tim the lawyer. 
from the Goldwater Institute, author of the recent book, Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man. Also, just, um, you know, we'll, we'll have a link at armstrongandgetty.com, Tim Sandifer Books, because there's a lot you should read, um, including the book you co-wrote with uh, your beautiful wife, Christina, your brilliant wife. Um, her beauty is a genetic accident. Her brilliance is brilliant. Um, uh, That's very but, clever. I'll, I'll steal that when I see her next. Uh, yeah. You know, I honestly, like I, uh, I just... Uh, well, so, you know, your beauty is a genetic accident. On the other hand, you're smart <laughs> as hell. Of course, that's partly a genetic accident, too. But she could have turned her intelligence to, like, you know... To evil instead of good. Exactly. Yeah. yeah designing a more profitable Indian casino or, or you know, something like mm-hmm. that as opposed to fighting for liberty. Mm-hmm. For well, instance. she's in New York City right now probably buying shoes, so I wouldn't overpraise her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's no. your problem, dude. <laughs> so uh, there's so many things we could talk about. Uh, Frederick Douglass, again, is his story, his character, his philosophy should by, be known by every school kid in America. And and school kids do read the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, which is the short version of his memoirs, the first version that he published in 1845. Uh, and it's usually assigned in like high school. That's where I first read it was in high school. Um, they, but very often we ignore his later life, his work as an as an intellectual, as a writer, as an international diplomat. He was the United States ambassador to Haiti. Uh, we we sort of forget his later career, which I think is by far more interesting. I'm, mm-hmm. I mean, his his tale of escape from slavery is brave and fascinating. But there's a lot of stories like that. Actually, there are quite a lot of of black abolitionists who were themselves escaped slaves. There was mm-hmm. the story of Henry Bo- Henry Box Brown who mailed himself to freedom in a crate. Uh, you know, people who went to these tremendous lengths to escape to freedom and told their stories. But Douglas is different because of the astounding eloquence and his engagement with with ideas. That's what makes him so special. He became one of the great American intellectuals, bar none. Yeah, and when you when you read his writing and you and you can, you think about his ideas and realize this man. Had no education at all. He never spent a day in any in, in a real school. I mean, he mm. had to steal literacy. It's really astonishing what he accomplished. Well, yeah, and we need to talk more about the nature of slavery uh, during the next hour. If or if you're not going to be here, uh, check out the podcast. But um, I want to talk about the fact that he was a leader, an agitator for a truly downtrodden people, really the underprivileged class, and yet. He had no use for socialism and communism. He looked at them very carefully. He considered them. Well, you tell us. What were his yeah, attitudes well, about? Well, so, socialism was, at the time, a very faddish new idea in his lifetime. Douglas lived from 1818 to 1878. So he died before the Soviet Revolution. There were he, he lived at the same time as Karl Marx. And he saw socialist experiments, you know, the Shaker communes and and things like that that went on in the United States to try socialism. And, and of course, the Paris Commune of the 1870s that ended in a disaster. These sorts of things he, he witnessed in his life. And he rejected communism and socialism. There was a story that on one occasion, another abolitionist tried to, to speak about communism at, a, at a, a speech that they were doing together. And Douglas made him stop and said, you know, we're here to talk about slavery. Let's not, let's not do that. Let's not t- change the subject. And on another occasion, uh, and that got him in a lot of trouble with his friends. On another occasion, uh, a speaker tried to argue that slavery and the ownership of any private property were equally evil, that it was just as bad to own land as it was to own humans. And Douglas called this errant nonsense. and bizarre and loathsome, and Exactly. Frankly. He yeah. said that, that, in fact, it's right and good for people to own property and in order to make a better life for themselves. And it's, it's a violation of fundamental rights to try and own another human being. It's like all the difference in the world. 
And his his first biographer, Douglas's first biography, was published in the 1890s, very shortly before he died. His first biography, a guy named Frederick Holland, talks about what Douglas thought about socialism. He knew Douglas. Douglas worked with him to put out the book. Douglas praised the book and said it did him strict justice. And when you read his comments, Holland says, Douglas is opposed to socialism because he knows that to work, people will only work for one of two reasons, either to make money or to escape punishment. And socialism makes it rules out the first option. So you're left with escaping punishment, which means that if any country actually created and implemented socialism, the only way you could get people to work is to create a compulsory labor system that would so resemble slavery as to be intolerable. And so he concludes the only that the only system that a lover of freedom can embrace is free markets and capitalism. And again, these are, are Holland's words, but Douglas approved of them. Mm-hmm. So we know that Douglas had no time for the idea. And, and the reason why he had no time for the ideas of socialism is because he believed most fundamentally that freedom is not something that can be given to you by somebody else. It has to be something that you earn and deserve. Right. Right. And he was denied the fruits of his own labor for a, gr- a big chunk of his early life. Then right. When he was able to enjoy the fruits of his labor, he found that incredibly dignifying and liberating and, yeah. and liberating. Right. Now, even in a communist system, say, or a socialist system um, where the, you know, the work has to be compelled. We know that um, the idea that everybody will pitch in for the common good is is childish lunacy. Oh, no, there's the new socialist man who will not be selfish and will care for his all of his brothers equally and will labor for their subsistence. Hey, your unicorn just took a crap in the corner. <laughs> I expect you to clean that up. But even if it were markedly better than slavery, um, and I just happened to have a conversation about this very topic with Craig Gottwalls right before I read your book, and it was weird. I thought my mind had played a trick on me, but... No, it was just happened to be precisely the same conversation because he's reading Gulag Archipelago, the, the classic about the Soviet Union. God bless him. Yeah, oh. I know. Yeah, that's yeah. a long book. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, but the i the, the point is the amount of the amount of of tyranny, the amount of punishment, the amount of pain that has to be inflicted to ensure compliance in the system to make it work is unthinkable. To anybody who prizes liberty, you—it's not just you know, hey, hey, hey. We need you to you know pick up the pace a little bit over there. You need to impose an entire system of surveillance and harsh punishment to even make it work a little. And and when you point this out, a lot of the time, people on the left will 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 respond, well, yes, but we'll change human nature. We will we will show people that it's in their their best interest to participate together, and government is something we do together, et cetera, et cetera. And that, of course, doesn't, in fact, work. People not only care about themselves more than others, but it is morally right for them to care more about themselves than others. Right. Morally right for them to care more about their children than other people's children. More morally right for them to care about their neighbors than people elsewhere. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. And socialism tries to teach you that you exist for the sake of other people. And if Douglas teaches us nothing else, it's that you have the right to live to pursue your own happiness. Mm-hmm. And of course, that will include caring for your loved ones and helping out your friends and neighbors and working for the betterment of the world. But most fundamentally, you own yourself and you own, you have a right to pursue your own happiness. You don't exist to make other people happy. A quick note for our devout Christian friends who I hear saying, well, wait a minute, I love Jesus, I follow the teachings, blah, blah, blah. My answer to that is so simple. Please jot it down. At no time did Jesus or Paul or Peter or any of the disciples say, Julius Caesar should 
the government must. I want Caesar and all of his soldiers to enforce this philosophy. Because, you know, no matter what you think of Christianity or Jesus or whatever, that would be antithetical to the way the man saw the world. He wanted the Reformation to be within your soul and for your acts of charity to be from personal inclination, not at the point of um, of, of the Caesar's sword. That would be a horror to a devout Christian. There's no, there's all the difference in the world between love and compulsion. And what totalitarianism tries to do is to compel you to love. That's what makes it so profoundly evil. Yeah. The other insight that I love about this whole question is the horse and horseman argument that socialists always try to convince you that Stalin, it was a good horse, but he was a poor horseman. Chairman Mao, oh, it was a good idea, but he was a poor horseman. Again and again and again. Look at Venezuela. Look at Cuba. Look at Remarkable look string of coincidences. Right. It's always the horseman and not the horse. I'm here to say the socialist horse sucks. It is a horse that will never, has never, can never run. All right. Enough of that. More on uh, Frederick Douglass, more specifically, next hour. Uh, the fight for liberty, what the Goldwater Institute's up to, uh, Star Trek, the late-night joke, whatever we decide to do. All right? It's our show, huh? It's liberty, my friends. Stay with us. It's the Armstrong and Getty Show.